Chapter 15, Fall Harvest Countdown and Heavenly Signs. To begin, let's get to examining that fall harvest that is of people season to which was earlier referred. Without a shadow of a doubt, it has arrived in literal time, but before getting into those details, it's advantageous to once again refresh what occurred in the first century, that is the spring harvest, as it sets the stage of foundational proof for the fall harvest. Again, the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered mid-afternoon, that's 3 p.m. of the 14th day on Wednesday, exactly when Yeshua, that is the Messiah, the lamb pictured, was crucified on the tree. Three days later, the Sabbath, the priests were to gather a small bundle of green barley to wave in the temple. <clears throat> First was a down wave symbolizing death, while the succeeding up wave symbolized resurrection. With that in mind, Yeshua told his disciples he would be in the grave three days and nights, which means he was to emerge exactly at the time of that wave sheaf ceremony. And that's when the graves in Jerusalem opened and the saints of old came into the streets to be seen by the people, which would be Saturday afternoon. Yeshua quite literally led the captive saints out of captivity, that is death, exactly as rehearsed in the wave sheaf ceremony. <clears throat> And considering the Passover and wave sheaf ceremony happened exactly on the times rehearsed in the physical celebrations, and the wave sheaf also initiated the countdown, that is of 50, to the completion of the spring harvest, that is the first fruit priestly harvest, there can be no doubt it was completed exactly 50 years after Yeshua's and the saints' resurrection. Again, the three days between Passover and the wave sheaf was precisely as rehearsed which tells us the 50-day countdown to the completion of the spring harvest, which is the Feast of First Fruits, would also have been precise, only a day for a year by necessity. With that literal real-time example playing out in the first century, what more proof do we need the timing or time periods of the fall harvest will be the precise times rehearsed as well? After seeing the timing play out in the first century, we know the 10 days between the real-time fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets and Atonement is also 10 years, as was the countdown to the completion of the spring harvest. Personally, all doubts have been erased, allowing me to stake my life on it. Getting to the fall harvest season then, we know the Feast of Trumpets coming in real time obviously initiates the fall harvest. But when is the big question? Considering how evil this world has become, how could anyone imagine it could be far off? After arriving at that conclusion in the early 2000s, I began praying to know when the Feast of Trumpets would be here in real time. About a dozen years later, in 2016, I was intrigued to hear of a man running for president named Donald Trump. Immediately, my ears perked, considering Donald Trump means King Trumpet or Ruling Trumpet. On understanding the importance of names to the creators and how they were used in Scripture and are being employed currently really got my attention. To show what I mean, upon hearing of a man running for president in 2008 named Obama, a chill went through my body. I knew if he became president, we would be an Obama nation. Well, that's exactly what happened. His apologizing to the world for the U.S.'s wealth, saying we stole it, and blaming all the world's ills on the U.S. made us a literal abomination to the world. Secondly, his throwing fuel on abortion rights, that is, murdering babies, as well as gay or sodomite marriage, made us a moral abomination to the creators as well. Having that kind of proof of importance of names made me think Donald Trump's 
run for president could well be the sign or the announcement for which we'd been waiting. But considering Mr. Trump obviously had no chance of winning, that is, by his own admission, and just running wouldn't be enough, I needed something more miraculous. Well, that miracle was announced by the 300 trumpets sounding via phone link on Election Day, announcing his win. That miracle was enough, at least for me, but there's one more, there's more. Beginning with four blood moons in a row on Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles in 2014 and 2015. Then there was the solar eclipse passing over the heart of our nation, August 21st of 2017. Solar eclipses have always been viewed as harbingers of ill tidings. Considering one passed over the heart of Europe just before World War I and the outbreak of the Spanish flu, which killed over 100 million people. No doubt that first solar eclipse over our country is also a harbinger of coming destruction or tribulation. That is, unless the U.S. wakes up and returns to our Creator and His Torah of love. Considering the hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and fires have multiplied exponentially since then, that warning is already a fact. But the destructive events pronounced by the first solar eclipse are only the beginning of the real prophesied horrors to be ushered in by the trumpet plagues of Revelation 8. But there's a positive side. That first eclipse passed directly over seven towns and cities named Salem. Salem in Hebrew means peace. Considering the constant rumors of impending war, that is World War III and or Civil War, almost everywhere these days, it seems that first eclipse was a heavenly announcement, we will have peace at least until that second solar eclipse crosses the first, which is April 8th of 2024. In fact, as we will see, when the second solar eclipse comes, all hell breaks loose, ushering in those Revelation 8 and 9 trumpet plagues, and no doubt, war. To bring what's happening into a more understandable perspective, we need only remember history. After all, it is said, those who fail to remember history are doomed to repeat it. That said, in ancient Egypt, we find the population of the enslaved Israelites becoming so great, the Pharaoh became concerned about an Israelite uprising. Following his chief advisor's advice, that is Job, see the book of Jasher, he ordered all the baby boys thrown into the river, which would drastically lessen the opportunity for them ever mustering an army for a revolt. Consequently, after the plagues that were caused by the passing of Nemesis and the exodus of the Israelites, Egypt was all but completely decimated. Those plagues utterly, utterly destroyed their crops, their orchards, herds, homes, followed by the death the death angels killing of all the firstborn Egyptians. <clears throat> the final blow came with the Pharaoh and his army being drowned in the Red Sea. Obviously, the Creator takes the murdering of his babies very serious. And if we think what was done to Egypt was just an isolated coincidence, we need only jump forward to the first century where the Edomian king of Judea, that is Herod, called for the murdering of all baby boys two years old and younger. Herod had, had, had heard rumors of a Messiah had just been born who was to be the new king of Judea and was desperate to keep it from happening. Although legend ironically says Herod's life ended by being eaten alive by worms, it certainly didn't undo his actions and end his legacy. Since Herod's death obviously could not redeem the thousands of babies murdered, consequently by 70 AD, Jerusalem was completely razed 
In fact, Bible historian Josephus, conscripted to be a scribe for the Roman Emperor Vespasian, stood with him on the hill overlooking Jerusalem as Vespasian marveled how he could not tell a city had ever been there. Just as with Egypt, Judea paid dearly for the murder of those babies. But what's crazy is the Jews were some of Yahweh's own chosen people. That's proof he's not a respecter of persons, only actions. In the book of Jubilees, which was once a part of the Old Testament canon, we find an angel of Yahweh telling Moses that Yahweh required the lives of 1,000 Egyptians for every one of the Israelite babies thrown in the river. Consequently, Egypt was utterly destroyed and nearly wiped off the face of the earth for what they did to Yahweh's people, or babies. With that in mind, just how many lives are going to be required in this modern era for the over 60 million, that is 1.4 billion worldwide, of the babies slaughtered? Are the modern nations of Israel, that is the Western nations, going to dodge this cannonball, i.e. very large bullet that's coming for the murdering of millions of babies? If you think, yes, you are the greatest of fools, if Yahweh doesn't change, as Malachi says he does not, and it's 1,000 for one, that's huge. That's billions on the global scale. Unfortunately, it's too late for the majority of the modern Israelite nations and peoples. The blood of those innocent babies so viciously butchered is screaming to heaven for retribution and vindication. And that piper of retribution is shortly to arrive, as we will soon see. But before moving on, I'd like to relate a story of a man's vision, not someone I know, on YouTube. He started by mentioning how he did not like to talk about negative or depressing topics. But this was an exception. The man went on to say in his vision, his vision was so shocking he just had to get it off his chest. The vision opened with he and his family in a high-rise building in New York City when he heard a voice telling him to get his family out because the city was going to burn. In shock, he obeyed and got his family up into the hills overlooking the city. Just then, the city erupted in flames, and he asked the voice, Why? Why would you burn that big, beautiful city? The answer was a shocking two short words, the babies. Apparently, New York City was the first to legalize abortion and the first to legalize infanticide, which is, of course, the murder of babies outside the womb. Again, are we really going to pretend the creators have and or are going to turn a blind eye to the slaughter of literally billions of babies? At any rate, the next morning the man was obviously feeling disturbed and making it worse was a word kept flashing into his head, into his mind. He said it was a word he'd never used or even knew the meaning of, which is nemesis. After having the word pop into his head a half a dozen times, he finally got a dictionary to see what it meant. I myself thought I knew what it meant, which was different from what he said, so I also looked it up. To my surprise, what he said, Webster's Dictionary said, was true. An instrument of just punishment. What is so shocking, Nemesis is one of the names of the brown dwarf solar system that's about to come smashing through our inner solar system to literally rain down hell upon the world. Again, is that just a coincidence considering the avenging of all the murdered babies is long overdue? Even more shocking and coincidental, not, is the last time this system came through and rained down hell on earth was just before the first exodus. All those plagues, except the last one, are obviously results of nemesis. 
Again, nemesis means instrument of just punishment, for which ancient Egypt was due, and as are we. That said, how interesting the first four trumpet plagues in Revelation 8 perfectly describe the fallout of this nemesis system. The first trumpet is hail and fire raining down, that is meteor storms, mixed with blood, that is red dust from Nibiru, which burns up much of the earth's forest and vegetation. Of course, that would also include buildings and towns and cities. <clears throat> the second trumpet announces a flaming mountain, that is an asteroid falling into the sea, destroying a third of the ships of, of the sea and the sea life. Obviously, that flaming mountain or asteroid is also going to take out the coastal cities surrounding that ocean with a massive tidal wave generated. The movie Deep Impact did a tremendous job portraying that actual event. Apparently, the outermost planet orbiting that brown dwarf sun, the one that comes closest to Earth, is a planet called Nibiru. Nibiru is an iron planet with a cloud of iron oxide dust that is red surrounding it. And when Nemesis smashes through the asteroid belt between Jupiter and Mars, it will be both pushing and pulling meteorites and asteroids and scattering them throughout the solar system. The third trumpet plague then announces a meteor or small comet described as a star burning like a torch, which the translators labeled wormwood, that rains down something poisonous on the rivers and lakes, consistent with poison gases and radioactive minerals believed to be associated with some comets. Before getting to that fourth trumpet, a man named Tom Horn recently published a book called The Wormwood Prophecies. The book details a vision he had in space of an incoming dragon towards Earth, which after pass passing him realized was an asteroid. After coming out of the vision, he heard a voice whisper in his ear. Its name is Apophis. Tom discovered Apophis was the pagan Egyptian god of destruction and chaos. But now he was curious. Through a general friend in Washington, Tom was able to talk to a man with a high security level in NASA about what they knew about asteroids. To his shock, NASA is monitoring thousands of asteroids which a couple hundred labeled NEOs, or near-Earth objects. But what was most shocking was they determined one of those has a 100% chance of striking Earth in the coming decade, that is, unless its course is altered by something. Naturally, they're telling the public it will only skim Earth and not directly impact. But what a shock to discover, they named this huge asteroid, which is four football fields wide, Apophis. How appropriate that Apophis is the Egyptian god of chaos and destruction. Getting to that fourth plague then, it's darkness. Obviously, between the dust blasted up by the asteroids and meteorites, and the huge quantity of volcanoes no doubt erupting, the atmosphere will be so polluted in along with the red dust of Nibiru, as to cause worldwide darkness and or winter. Interestingly, that iron oxide cloud of Nibiru has spread out to look like wings, which resembles a dragon also. How amazing, considering Revelation, that Revelation 12 prophesies a dragon swoops in to destroy the woman, that is, with a tsunami, of course, which would be caused by the flaming mountain or the asteroid, who is then whisked to a place of safety by a great eagle. After the fourth trumpet comes the most ominous of all the plagues, the fifth. That trumpet details an angel coming with a key to open the bottomless pit. 
and to release the 200 watchers imprisoned there to once again set up their world rule just as before the great flood. Getting back to the countdown to the fall harvest and to the end of this present age and Donald Trump's miraculous rise to the president, see with the 300 trumpets, it was without a shadow of a doubt the announcement of the fall harvest season in real time. But supporting that conclusion is all the heavenly signs. First were the blood moons, followed by a solar eclipse. But most shocking and amazing of all is the Revelation 12 sign of the woman in heaven. That incredible sign is a woman, that a woman would be seen in heaven, being clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a garland of 12 stars over her head. Shockingly, that impossible sign, as say all the astronomers, was seen in real time in September of 2017, at the exact same time as the keeping of the literal Feast of Trumpets, which fully confirms the real-time fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets and the trumpet plagues of, ancient, of, of, trumpet plagues of Revelation 8 through 9. You see, that sign of the woman was anything but natural or normal. All the astronomers I've heard discuss the event all agree it was impossible due to the unnatural motion required of the planets that had to line up with the stars of Leo. Again, the reason that configuration is impossible is there are only nine stars above Virgo the Virgin's head, which is the constellation Leo. In order for those nine stars of Leo to become a garland of twelve, means three planets had to join the nine of Leo, which according to the natural planetary orbits can never happen. That leaves us with only two conclusions. One, that alignment was done supernaturally. Or two, it was caused by the influence of the Nemesis star system. Considering I saw with my own eyes Venus and a couple other planets not move for three months in the early months of 2017, I believe the latter to be the truth. The Revelation 12 passages go on to relate the historical war in heaven where the dragon was ultimately cast to earth with a third of the angels. The prophecy then jumps forward to it attempting to devour the child that is the Messiah the woman had just given birth in the first century. But the child is taken to heaven and the woman is saved by fleeing into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her. This first prophecy of the woman birthing a child seems to clearly be speaking of the first century Messiah. But we have a repeating of the sign in verse 13. There it says, Now when the dragon saw that it had been cast to the earth, it persecuted the woman who gave or had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent, that is the dragon. No doubt that sign was seen in the first century as well, considering the event is chronicled twice in Revelation 12, with obvious differences. The first woman gave birth to a male child, who is to rule all nations, who was taken to heaven before the dragon could devour it, while the woman fled into the wilderness to a safe place prepared for her, to be provided and protected. That would be actually ten years. The second woman is also referred to as the one who had given the birth to the male child, but who is now being persecuted by the dragon. But this time it says she's given the two wings of an eagle that she might fly into her place. That is for three and one half years. 
The first prophecy of the woman did not say anything about how long she would be in a place, safe place, and it, but apparently it was 10 years, not three and one half, if we look closely at the scriptures. It says then, the dragon goes on to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of Yahweh. Again, looking closely, we see these two events are similar but still quite different. Plus, the dragon sends a great flood or a tsunami after the second woman, which it says the earth opens up and swallows. There's no historic record of a tsunami in the first century by the great historian Josephus, who was there, or anyone else for that matter. Getting back to the two solar eclipses mentioned earlier, they not only cross exactly where our nation's heart would be if we were a human, but form a tav in the process. The tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each Hebrew letter has its own meaning, which in the case of the tav is primarily sign. But that's not all. Tav also means covenant as well as covering. In other words, those two solar eclipses combine to send a heavenly message, a heavenly sign of the covenant, and the subsequent covering of the woman in, the place, in a place of safety. So, of what covenant are those eclipses a sign? Well, considering the United States is the modern nation of Ephraim, the largest and most powerful of all the modern as well as ancient Israelite nations, it stands in the position of being the primary modern Israelite nation to wield the baton of Yahweh's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That said, the solar eclipses forming that Tav sign directly over the heart of our nation lends greatly to the idea of the United States being the new promised land. We'll talk more about that later. Again, how do we argue with he impossible heavenly signs? It's definitely a wake-up call, i.e. sign. But just how many will awaken and turn back to Yahweh and his Torah of love? Unfortunately, the prophecies indicate it will be a very small number. Remember, that Tav means covering, which is an announcement of protection. With that in mind, it's interesting to realize there are ten years between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, with the woman being taken to a place of protection for three and one half of those years. That three and one half years can only be those just before that great day of mourning and humility, atonement. Is it just a coincidence? Not. The time between those two eclipses is six and one half years which leaves exactly three and one-half years between the second eclipse and atonement? How can anyone possibly conclude these impossible events and their timing are mere coincidence? A related item of interest is to realize all four series of terrible events outlined in Revelation all come in sets of seven, the round number between the two eclipses. Of course, the whole point of the Feast of Trumpets is to warn Yahweh's modern people of the coming destruction of their nations. It all comes to a climax during that last three and one half years before atonement, that is the great humbling. The modern exodus to the new promised land then begins immediately. That would be the next five days in the rehearsal or five years in the real-time fulfillment. This new promised land is otherwise known as the millennium, or the 800 years of peace and prosperity, i.e. without death for Yahweh's people. And as we will see, it's no doubt Yeshua the Messiah, pictured by Joshua, who leads modern Israel into that new promised land, that is the new Garden of Eden. Again, with those solar eclipses, Yahweh is reminding his modern people he has not forgotten them. 
But then it was only a few days ago in his time continuum that he made those covenants with our ancestors. As 2 Peter 3 tells us, one day in his realm is approximately a thousand years in our physical dimension, which again means it was only a few days ago from his perspective. Yahweh then sends his angel, or that is the angel of Yahweh, to bring his chosen ones to that place of protection for the three and a half years, ending up at the great day of humiliation, that is atonement. From there, the next five years are the new exodus into the new promised land, or the new Eden, depicted by the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, then, was an eight-day feast commemorating the dwelling or tabernacling of Yahweh, at least in spirit, with his people for what is called a millennium, the source of which is found in Revelation 20. Millennium is a generalization, though, a figure of speech simply meaning a long period of time. But we do know the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated anciently was a picture of the New Promised Land, the real one the modern Israel is about to exit into a thousand years or not. This entering into the new promised land, or the new Eden, is the chance for Israel to finally be the light or example set on a hill as Yahweh had always intended them to be. He repeatedly chastised them anciently for not being that light to the Gentile people as he wanted. Not only did they fail to show the way, but even became worse than the pagans they were to show. By the way, if we add up the years from the time the Israelites entered into the Promised Land until the final Babylonian captivity, well, you guessed it, 800 years. How amazing how the rehearsal times of Yahweh's plans are so perfectly accurate.